0: let's dive into today's topic. Welcome to the HR for Small Business podcast. This is your host, Brandon Laws. Thank you for the download and welcome back for another episode. Today, we are going to split up uh, this episode in a couple different ways, we are doing an episode all about training and development and other learning opportunities, some you know, self-educated focused, uh, some classroom oriented, but I've invited four other people and myself, uh, so we have five people total and we're going to talk about various uh, opportunities for learning and development. And first off, I thought I would kick it off with myself just, just brainstorming and talking about some of the things that I've done over the years, I historically had never been an avid reader. I guess you I guess you could say I I was one of those people that in college I avoided buying textbooks. I hated to read the lessons and I would just kind of show up to class, take notes and, you know, do do a decent job. But as I got out of school and I, I really didn't have the the great habits of reading, I, I kind of realized especially as I w- entered the workforce that learning shouldn't stop and it it couldn't uh, I actually ran across a couple people in my professional life that you know were avid readers and they'd always talk about the things that they're learning and and they actually put me onto a couple books and I just started absorbing these and yeah, I'd spend my weekends reading and that was kind of early on in my you know early 20s right after right after college And all of a sudden, I developed these habits of just wanting to read all the time and absorb different opinions and information. And I'd read anything from, you know, business to personal finance to economics. And, you know, I sometimes I would read a little bit of fiction, just, you know, just to mix it up a little bit. But really, I just started plowing through these nonfiction type books. And I mean, there's so many, there's so many great books out there, and there, there are constantly books being released all the time, and I just, uh, I, I don't know. It became like sort of like a goal every year to read as much as I could, and I, I'd say for the last few years, I've, I've set goals for myself of I think 32 books back in 2014, and then I, when I didn't, I barely. I almost reached it, but then I just kind of regressed my goal back to 30 and reached that last year in 2015. And in 2016, I set a goal of 35 books and I've, I've read just about 40 books this year as of this podcast. So I, I just say that because I love tracking the things that I've read. I love being able to connect with other people who have read a lot of books and to to be able to dabble in, in books for specific Business leadership, HR, whatever it is that you're you're trying to develop in, there are so many books out there, and so many authors are good at specific things. And what I what I find interesting about people who read books is a lot of times people who don't read a lot of books, they read one and then they you know read it cover to cover and they just they think it's the end all be all. But for me, when I read books, I read it intentionally to grab like a couple thing, like a couple nuggets from it. And then with the hope that I I can actually use some of that information and apply it to, to what I'm doing. And a lot of times, you know, if I don't get anything from it, then I just move on to the next thing. But what I love is that all these authors, they have opinions, they have research. And if you sample enough books out there, you could start to mold and shape your, your thoughts, your opinions, and it might spark some new ideas. But overall, I mean, With the hope, my intention is, of course, to develop new skills uh, on the leadership side um, and also in my profession, which is marketing. So I say that just because I think books are a really good opportunity for, for learning. I actually use a social media application called Goodreads, and it's a way to connect with other people who've read, people I know, people I don't know, authors, you know, those sort of things. We connect, you can see what they're reading. You can track your history, your progress. And that's actually where I set the reading challenges for myself to read a certain amount of books. So I encourage you to to check that out. The other things I wanted to mention that has really helped my development have been for one podcast. So something like this, where I subscribe to regularly, and we'll will you know we'll always listen to new episodes releasing. And I, I usually stick to, you know, for me personally, it's leadership based things, business topics, economics, I'm kind of a junkie when it comes to that and then sports. So, and that's kind of my leisure thing. But with the iPhone, with Android phones, they make it so easy with the applications that they have on the phone that because we are mobile, we're on the go. This is like the new source of education. Is like if you don't have time to sit down and read a book, I would highly encourage you. If you have an iPhone, the podcast app is great. Go to the you know the search feature, and you can type in leadership or HR. And I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you already know how that works. But uh, Android has a similar function. Stitcher is a, is a good application for podcasts, and there's many other applications. But podcasts are the, the way to go. I, I, I think I try to sample ones that are between 20 minutes and an hour long, and you can definitely get some opinions, um, current events, and all, all sorts of really good information that... You know, if you're on the go and you're in the car, going to a client or you're going to school or you're going to work, I mean, there's so much dead time. Why listen to the radio when you can listen to podcasts? And that's kind of how I treated um, my car. I think, you know, Zig Ziglar once said, you know, if you're in the car, why not turn your car into a university on wheels? Or if you ride the bus or you ride public transportation of some sort. Well, why not put in the earbuds and and listen to some podcasts or audiobooks? I think those are those are really good opportunities. The last thing I wanted to just kind of share on the self learning side is there's so many really good video training courses that are on demand. We are, you know, kind of like podcasting. We are in an age of technology that it's it makes information so abundant. And there are websites and there are several of them, but these are the ones that I personally use for what I'm doing is creativelive.com, skillshare.com, lynda.com. There are very specific video training courses, whether it's, you know, you see somebody in front of a classroom speaking, uh, they may be speaking to a live audience, but it's very much built for a video on-demand course. And then there may be screen sharing as well. So if, for example, if you're trying to learn some Excel tips or skills, lynda.com, for example, may be able to share the screen and show you step-by-step on the screen, how to do certain functions or utilize certain aspects within Excel or other Microsoft products for that matter. So I think, you know, from a a self-learning standpoint, the areas that I have totally changed my life and what I, what are my go-tos and my preferences are books, video training on demand and podcasts. And I, I stick to these because they're, they're downsides to other things, which we're going to talk about in a second with some other guests. But for me, these are, I can control my time a lot better with these. These are on my own time books, you know, in bed 20 minutes before I go to bed or something like that. Podcasts are in my car, video training, and maybe in the morning or on the back end of a day, something like that while I'm in the office and I want to just shift what I'm doing. So the downsides are pretty little, I think, and and it's all the stuff's in abundance. So I think you have all this information at the tip of your fingers. So anyways, I'm going to wrap my, my portion up. I'd like to welcome Angela Perkins. She is the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Zenium, and she's actually my boss, uh, but she's going to talk about peer groups. She's had a lot of experience in uh, over the last few years in uh, being a part of a peer group in the uh, local Portland, Oregon area, and she's going to talk all about that. So Angela, you've been a part of an executive peer group local to to the Portland, Oregon area, but these things exist all over. What was the reason behind joining an executive networking peer group like you did?
1: You know, it's interesting because if you only rely on your own executive team uh, for idea sharing and problem solving, I think it can limit you in terms of what the possibilities are. So for myself, the peer executive networking group was a little bit of outside accountability, definitely outside perspective. And really just having a trusted place where you can be pretty vulnerable with ideas, questions, concerns, and get feedback, instant feedback, from people that you trust and respect. The cool thing, too, about uh, peer networks, if they're designed correctly, they offer a variety of industry titles. So you've got some folks coming at it from a CFO or COO. Um, seat, you've got the vice president of sales, you've got the vice president of customer service, you've got all of these different kinds of positions mixed into a room all from different companies and you know one of the skills that I've developed over the years that I've been part of it is sifting through the advice that I do get because not everybody's gonna be spot on with that so it might not work inside my company if I take someone's advice but it's been really liberating for me to hear how other people might approach a problem that I'm working through and then sift through their advice and decide what pieces and parts I'm gonna apply.
0: So give us a visual like what this group actually looks like. How many people are there? You talked about the titles that exist. Are they all in local areas? What kind of businesses are they?
1: I'll share what my group is part of, the the peer networking group that I'm a part of, is all local, so they're all C-level folks that are a key executive, that's the definition. So they are sitting on the executive team and they are from generally somewhere between 10 to 20 plus years of experience. So they've kind of, they've got their battle wounds, right? They've got some scarring (laughs) from their past experiences. And there's, in our group, there's about 15 to 18 people. There's a lot of accountability happening in this group. So there's 15, 18 people you get to know pretty intimately. You know what their family situation is. You know what their ins and outs are of their role and you get together once a month and you talk about work and you talk about life and you talk about challenges and when you're sitting in a room surrounded by 15 peers, you get a lot of feedback and input. That's what the meetings are intended to do is to drive conversation and help each other solve problems. So in, in our case, once a month we get together, it's an all-day session. That's a huge commitment. It is, and you know, like any other listener right now, there's rarely a time where you think, oh yeah, this day works perfect to be gone from the office all day. It's intentional. It really has to be, and I think that's been a bit, one of the biggest values, and one of the things before getting into something like this, uh, the facilitator that leads our uh, my peer group really interviews the folks to say what is your commitment level and and how much can you give back to this group because it's one thing for folks to come in and say oh i want to learn all of these things from my other peer members but you have to be willing to share the tough advice you have to hold people accountable Uh, you have to go right so you have to show up once a month and we all hold each other accountable it's interesting because although we're led by a facilitator who's got a long resume and he's super qualified a previous ceo um, who's now in his retirement years and giving back in this way, um, he's really not even our number one accountability partner, right? It's the fellow members that are like, hey, if I'm going to sacrifice my day to come here, you better be here too. So it's it's nice to have that level of accountability and trust.
0: To talk about the differences between, you know, if you're not part of an, an executive peer networking group, a lot of times you are going to try to solve problems and talk talk through it with internal people, sure. other executive members. Sure. What's the decision like to to now use this, use this peer group as a sounding board for a lot of those issues. What's the differences and is it a safe space?
1: Yeah, it's some, it's funny that you say safe space. I use my group as a rough draft, if you will. Mm, so
0: you go first, you Absolutely. you talk about those issues first and then bring yep. other ideas or Cause try I to want, I it. want
1: people to see what I'm not seeing. I want them to point out my blind spot. I want them to ask questions that I haven't asked of myself because I'm so comfortable in within my senior leadership team, or I just assume my opinions right. Or I know where I'm headed, so I don't need to get outside advice. My peer networking group allows me to um, try that out with them, and again, they're holding me accountable to say, "That's interesting that you would look at it this way, because you're not thinking about X, Y, and Z." And you know, I I said earlier, some of their advice might not be spot on. I might you you spend. a day, a month together. So they don't know the ins and outs of my financials and my sales growth and the marketing But do you share some of those things? Absolutely. It's all an open book, but you still only have eight hours a month to share some of that stuff. So I think part of it is it's the rough draft for me to say, this is where I'm headed. Here's my problem. Here's what I'm trying to solve. Here's what I've done so far. Here's what hasn't worked. And here's what I'm going to try next. And that group is able to provide me some I I visualize like the bumpers in a bowling lane. I'm gonna bump along them until I'm ready to really take it to the executive leadership of my company and roll out a potential solution or do a brainstorm within my own executive team.
0: The benefits seem pretty obvious. I mean, you alluded to a lot of those. What are some of the downsides to, to doing this? I mean, expenses, time away, I mean, those are some of the things that come to my mind, but what about, what have you known as a downside to yeah, peer group? Yeah, I mean, those are
1: probably the most inherent it is it is a commitment both financially and um, on the clock. And I think the downside I haven't experienced personally, because um, just how, how I approach my peer group is with 110% commitment. I think If a member were to look at this group and be on the fence for whether or not they wanted to do this, what you would likely see happen is attendance issues and maybe lack of sharing. If people are not open and willing to be vulnerable inside this room, then it it sort of doesn't merit the expense and the time because you need to get output and give back from this group. You're giving a lot. really. I don't, I can't see another downside. In fact, so I've been in my group for, um, it's going on four years this spring. And when I joined, um, it was partly I, my background is a individual contributor turned leader. And I've been with my same company for 17 years. And I I wanted outside perspective. I wanted someone else to hold me accountable and and show me what I don't see inside my own company. And frankly, I wanted to learn that without having to leave my company, right? Because a lot of people say, oh, I career path here and there and I was able to move around. I don't wanna have to do that. I, I loved it here and love it here. So I wanna stay, how can I do that? How can I continue to grow? And this was one of the ways I could do that. That's been all of four years I would never have thought that I would stay in the group. I saw it when I first signed up as, oh, I'll do this a couple of years. I don't know if I thought I was going to arrive somewhere, but that arrival hasn't happened for me. I I can't imagine letting go of the trusted relationships that I've built. And now, I mean, I talk about this commitment of one day a, a month getting together, but there are individual relationships inside that peer group that are critically important to me. And I use them as a sounding board outside of that once a month. So they are now a, a invested group of people, even just a smaller core group of four or five people that I will regularly go to for support and guidance and, and thus give them that back as well.
0: You're a very outgoing person, very social. So you probably haven't had a lot of moments where you felt super uncomfortable even when sharing a rough story, although you probably have. But what about for the introvert that maybe uh, joining a peer executive group would be really hard for them yeah. do you feel like this is for everybody
1: we've used this word already in our conversation today of um intentional we have several introverts and honestly i think introverts seek out things like this even more than the extrovert if you will so because it's built for them then they really are pushed and it's almost like they're not given an opportunity to you know sort of be that wallflower and hang back and you know even though yes i'm i'm I generally am fine to share my opinion. Um, there's been moments of, of where I'm getting held accountable in a way that's a little uncomfortable, or I don't like the advice I'm getting, or I don't want to go the direction that my group's sharing with me. Those are tough meetings to walk away from. Um, here's where I think a peer group would not be a fit, is if someone is truly not growth mindset, sort of they, they don't believe they can get better they probably won't get anything out of a peer group. Um, And then the vulnerability piece. And if they're not going to be intentional about pushing themselves, then they won't get the result out of the group that they could.
0: Yeah, thanks for the insight on the peer group, um, executive networking group aspect. Anything else that people should know about?
1: Only other thing I would say is, again, this peer groups are really, we, we use the word networking and just to clarify, it really is about growth and development, and the networking piece isn't about, hey, what do you do, and should we trade business cards? I think that's one of the things in Portland, particularly, that I was always seeking growth and an opportunity to learn, and when you go to a peer networking event, sometimes it's less about that, even if there's a speaker, um, and, and more about this rubbing elbows. That's that's not what these peer networks are intended to do. It really is developing a trusted relationship and folks that you can take on in your professional career from this point forward. One of the things
0: that excites me about the prospects of joining one in the future is the fact that you always come back and you're always excited about some author that you just had seen speak on an issue. And then you guys take those ideas back and you discuss the book and discuss some of the ideas that that the author had shared during a, during a speaking engagement. So it's... It does sound like you're utilizing just knowledge Absolutely. based from authors, yeah. so.
1: It's, again, it's coming back to that accountability if we have a speaker, and by the way, the speakers are amazing, and we have, in our uh, forum, we have eight speakers a year, so eight of the 12 meetings include an expert that comes in for half of the day, and those folks are not people that would normally be here um, and just randomly talking in a chamber or something. They you're getting your bang for your buck in some of those people that you're hearing from because these are very um, well-known authors and speakers that are sought out for their their uh, subject matter expertise. And But then the accountability that you have inside your peer group, you take that knowledge and then there's accountability around application. So it's not that you just get motivated by somebody that's going to share a great idea, it's that then your accountability group is going to say, so how does that apply to your firm and how will you use that and what will you share with your team tomorrow? So it, it is, it's um, a really well run way to go about development.
0: Thanks for joining the podcast, Angela. Thanks for having me. Please welcome back Lacey Halpern. She is a senior human resource business partner at Xenium, and she is here to talk all about certifications. She's actually going through the SHRM certification right now, and she's going to give us all the details about how that's going and the pros and cons behind it. So, Lacey, you're currently going through your SPHR certification?
2: Uh, My SHRM SCP. SHRM SCP. So,
0: actually... Talk about the differences between those two real quick.
2: So SHRM recently um, came out with uh, a certification track. So there's two, the SHRM CP, which is the Certified Professional uh, in HR, and then the SCP, which is the Senior Certified Professional. The HR Certification Institute has, for a really long time, had two different tracks as well. The PHR, so the Professional Human Resource Um, certificate and the SPHR. So they're very similar. The body of knowledge that you study in order to be able to sit for the exam is the same, you know, materials. HRCI has always used the materials from SHRM, and so SHRM has, you know, probably for a lot of different reasons, but they've decided to create their own certifications. So I currently have my PHR and my SHRM CP, so I'm just sitting for the senior exam. This so, one.
0: And it sounds like for, for HR professionals, like, these are the certifications to they get? Are.
2: They okay. are. There are some institutions, like, for example, in Portland, uh, Portland State University has an HR certification that you could do, um, not necessarily a nationally recognized one. So these are the national certifications that are available. And each uh, one has a certain number of years of experience that you have to have in order to be able to sit for it.
0: And so, I mean, this discussion isn't necessarily just about the certifications that exist for, for HR but for any job out out there, there, there's a certain level of certification that may be required as part of the job or whatever. But in your opinion, why would somebody like yourself go out and get a certification as part of like, is this like by choice? This is a learning opportunity for you or what? What is it?
2: Yeah. You know, I can f- speak personally for me. I didn't have enough experience when I sat for the PHR six years ago um, to sit for the senior test. And so for me, it's just taking my you know, professional career to the next level. A lot of people I think might do it um, for the learning opportunity to study the materials and learn from it. I think it can also be a, a really great tool if you're somebody who's looking to be marketable out there. So if you're you know, a project manager, there are project manager certifications. There's just tons you know, for each different um, industry, different types of jobs. So you might do it for that purpose. It might be a requirement. For uh, an employer that's hiring, so you might have to have it even before you start, could be something that comes as a requirement with a promotion. There could be a a bunch of different reasons why somebody might want to do
0: this. And I imagine there are a ton of entities or schools that offer certifications. So which which types would be taken seriously on a resume?
2: I think it depends on the industry. You know, for me, this one is really important because it's nationally recognized. So I would just, you know, if I was somebody that was looking for you know what type of certification might be good i would be asking people that have certifications in the industry or in that that job type um, i'd be looking for a, you know accredited institutions to make sure that whatever you know uh, certification you're going for is going to be long-standing and be reputable and that you've got the financial resources you know to afford to pay for it because some of these can be quite expensive and the time, that's that's the other piece is it, it does require a pretty big commitment in terms of time in order to study and be able to, to pass these tests.
0: If you're going to list your top three reasons, whether it's personally or if you're looking at somebody else saying, okay, I don't have a certification. And if I'm looking at further in my career, these would be like the top reasons why I would go through a certification process. What, what would those be?
2: Top three, I would say to be marketable you know, uh, against other people that are applying for similar positions. So being able to put a couple
0: letters behind your name on Mm -hmm. a business card or a resume.
2: Yeah. I think the professional development and the learning that that, uh, you would get going through the process of studying for it. And maybe the third reason... you know, I gained a lot of experience doing the study group, so working with other people, going through the materials, um, you know, building relationships with other people that are also sitting for the exam. I did a study group through PERMA when I sat for my PHR, and we created an internal study group here at Zenium because there are several of us that are testing this time for the SHRM-SCP.
0: When you think about, like, going through the process on your own, what have been some of the biggest hurdles to get over?
2: The time commitment, <laughs> honestly. Um,
0: well, well, how do you, you cover up the time?
2: It's a lot of reading. So every certification is different. And Some it's are bo- all it's boring
0: reading, right? You know, technical, it's... Technical, manual. It's
2: technical. And I've been out of, you know, college for 10 years now. And so just... Getting back into the mindset of, you know, you work all day and you go home and you've got this other life, right? You want to go work out or spend time with your family or your friends or volunteer and you need to be making time studying. So just getting back into that mindset for me is probably the most difficult. I don't feel like I'm a great test taker either. So... I get anxious and nervous about that. I think I do a lot better in conversations, consulting with my clients and can apply experiences and things that I've read and learned, you know, to be able to answer multiple choice questions. It's not necessarily the thing I'm the best at, but I'm going to give it a shot.
0: You talked about the study group. You do a lot of self-reading as part of this. But when you actually take the test, is it, I, I envision that you're in this lab where you Take a test for like three hours on a computer. That's
2: correct. Yeah, you're in, um, you know, a testing center. I think you know there's several, you know, around the area. It's a like a clean room environment is the best way I can describe it. Where you, know, you basically
0: can have access can't to can't take anything.
2: anything in. You can get headphones. Um, I think they might give you a whiteboard and a calculator to do some of the problems for this one certainly. Maybe other ones don't require math. Yeah, and you you sit for it. You answer all the questions. Different certifications, sometimes you find out right in the moment whether you've preliminarily passed the test or not. Um, sometimes, you know, you might have to wait several weeks to be able to get the results. I will luckily know right away, for, for better, for worse.
0: So where does this rank on the spectrum of your learning needs or desires, you, the way, and the way in which you learn the best?
2: This is definitely the, on the lowest end of, of how I learn. You know, for me, experiential learning is, is the best. Mentorship is the best. Um, you know, learning from my peers, um, going through really sticky, tough situations and looking back and being like, what would I have done differently and dialoguing about that. That's great for me. Sitting down, reading, memorizing, quizzing, you know, myself, it's just not, it's just not necessarily the best thing for me. I think a lot of people will say, I don't remember half the stuff that I tested for unless
0: you apply it in your experiential stuff. Exactly.
2: So, um, the better thing about this round for me is just that I've got seven more years of experience under my belt and a lot of what I'm reading, I can relate more to versus the first time I sat for my PHR. Um, It was a lot of theory and things that I hadn't necessarily put into practice. So I would tell people if you're going to sit for a certification, you know, you obviously have to have the experience that the certification requires in order to be able to do it. But really think about, um, do I have the practical knowledge? Because I think it does give you an advantage.
0: Thanks for the insight, Lacey. Appreciate it. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Susie Alligood. She is the Director of Learning and Organizational Development at Zenium, And she is here to talk about workshops, seminars, and just a bunch of live training courses. And she's going to give us all the details about the pros and the cons uh, behind those sort of learning opportunities. So Susie, you lead and, and have developed so many workshops and seminars in, in all your years, especially at Xenium. In your sort of words or in your experience, what's the difference between workshops and seminars? or What can people expect from those?
3: Yeah, well, workshops are instructor-led, but they generally incorporate some exercises, games, and social learning activities that allow people to practice skills or apply the knowledge that they're being taught. exposed to and then seminars in my experience are generally more like informative lectures where a subject matter expert is sharing information so examples may be conferences where there are keynote presentations or where you're going to a legal update briefing on a compliance or regulatory topic
0: in my experience like with especially with seminars you just sort of go and In my case, you sit in the back and you just sort of watch a presentation happen. With workshops, it sounds like it's more of an interactive process. In your experience, how have you sort of seen the two play out?
3: Yeah, I think that workshops uh, are really valuable for actually getting to practice skills, right? So if you're being uh, exposed to a new tool or technique, it allows you to actually practice in a safe environment before you try it out at work. So, especially for skills related to communication or conflict management or coaching, those types of things, the the interactive workshops are really valuable for that type of learning. Um, Seminars are great and, you know, they may have the networking components where you can uh, talk with and engage with people in similar or related industries and learn about best practices. Uh, but generally, you're kind of showing up with the expectation that you're just going to get some updates in terms of information that hopefully you'll be able to take back to your workplace and share and educate people on.
0: So if I'm going to show up to either a workshop or a seminar, what sort of mindset should a person like myself who's going to attend one of those events, what sort of mindset should I have walking into an event like that?
3: When you asked me that question, I... I think less about the event aspect of it and more about the learning.
0: The content piece. Yeah, just yeah. what, what How is you're my objective? Absorb... Yeah, yeah. Why,
3: why am I doing this, right? Why am I spending this valuable time, which is generally our most precious resource, um, you know, seeking out this training or, or seminar? And first, I believe that training outside of like risk management and regulatory requirements should be strictly voluntary, So employees ultimately own their performance and their development and the employer provides tools and resources and opportunities to attend trainings or participate in coaching to achieve shared goals. So I always recommend before anybody attends any training or course that employers really take the time to ensure that it's directly related to the professional development and organizational objectives. So in other words, what are the specific knowledge, skill, or ability gaps you're looking to address by attending this? Um, And ultimately, if a person values professional development and they recognize the connection to their performance and success at work, they will likely possess the right mindset and an open mind and willingness to share knowledge and implement new practices is important too.
0: With technology specifically, like webcasts and other forms. And we've, we've done other segments on professional development. We've touched on like the amount of learning that's available out there is so abundant. It's insane. Everybody's got a podcast now, or somebody's launching a webcast, but specifically when we're talking about the web, the webcast versus a workshop or a seminar that you actually physically have to go to. What do you see as the main benefits of actually going to something that's live versus convenient and I'm just going to attend online?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I think you need to offer multiple types of, of learning opportunities to people. And but
0: specifically on the participant side, like exactly. what, are the, what are the benefits?
3: Exactly. So, I mean, certainly if logistics do not permit attending a class in person, a webcast may be your only or your best option. The challenge with webcasts, for example, or live stream events, is that there is little to no opportunity for engagement. And engagement is a key factor for learning and retention. Also, when people are sitting at their desks, they're more apt to be distracted by their email and the other work on their desk.
0: That's a great point, yeah.
3: Yeah, and conferencing in remote employees to workshops is not always ideal either, which I've done that quite a bit. And it becomes difficult when you have workshops that contain group activities and team discussion when you can't see the people or they're not in the room and you can't see their nonverbal cues, it makes it difficult to communicate with and include them. And I've even done the trick of taping photos of the remote employees' faces to the chairs <laughs> to make sure that we don't forget them. But even so, it's difficult, you know, for them to participate in those group exercises because they're sitting at their desk by themselves. So. You know, you have to have, you know, if you have a situation, which most employers do, where they have remote folks, it takes some skill and experience to facilitate a workshop effectively. So yes, you're going to have to look at alternative options such as web courses, webinars, and even book groups. And ideally that self-study is paired with some form of social and experiential learning.
0: It's funny because we're, you know, we're talking about the more the participant experience, but, you know, I've seen it firsthand with you when you're delivering both a webcast and uh, or seminar, your energy level at, when you're talking about workshops is, I mean, it's unmatched by anything. It's your energy level is so high because you, you feel like the energy of the room, people are engaged when you're doing a webcast and you're staring into a screen with everybody silent, it's kind of hard to match that same energy. So I, I could see how, The participant level, same thing. Mm -hmm. You're doing self-learning or a webcast. You just don't have the same energy on the learning side, probably as you do when you're sitting in a room watching a presenter who's excited about what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Just the body language is a lot, don't you think?
3: It does. And I also think that there's value of people who work together on the same team um, attending a workshop together because – there in addition to learning new things there's a team building component associated with that experience so i see a lot of value when you know in going on site and doing workshops that are customized for that particular team's objectives
0: when you talk about all the work that you've done in developing some of these workshops and i mean even on the participant side when you're developing these are you coming up with a few things that specifically you want people to accomplish when they attend. And then I'm sure on the participant side, you're thinking the same thing. Like, hey, I'm going to spend three hours. I want to get these two or three things out of it. Like what, what kind of goes through your mind with that?
3: Absolutely. Well, and there are different types of workshops that Zenium does. So one uh, is, are the hosted sessions that we do here each month. And those sessions are comprised of a variety of people in different roles and from different organizations. So unfortunately, in in those cases, it's hard to go really deep into a specific team's needs. Um, And so we really have to just focus and get clear on what the the top two skills, for example, that we're trying to transfer or help people with um, so that they can take it back to their work environment and apply it regardless of what type of business or organization they're in. Um, Now when you do the workshops, for example, at a client's workplace for a specific team, I do spend time on the front end getting to know what's going on with the organization. What's driving the need for this training? Give me some context. What are the biggest gaps between employees, behavior and performance, and what you're hoping to accomplish to meet your your organization's objectives. And I really try and hone in on, again, those top one or two, three maximum skills or behaviors that we're really trying to either increase or shift um, so that it's really relevant to that group, and the key is if training is not fun, engaging, and relevant, then your likelihood of someone actually modifying their behavior or it positively impacting their performance goes way down
0: when people actually say they don't prefer to attend seminars or workshops what's the reason they, they usually give cuz i know like what goes through my head it's time it's traveling it's i don't value the networking piece but what what's the common thing that you hear that people don't want to attend
3: Yeah, so the top two things are reasons for why people don't want to or just do not attend workshops or seminars or courses are one, I can't take the time away from work, you know, especially if someone's under stress or they have, you know, deadlines, they just don't feel like it's a luxury that they can afford. Uh, The second one is they've not had great experience (laughs) with training. So, They've had to sit through unengaging and irrelevant trainings in the past so they don't feel like it's uh, going to be a good return on their investment being their time. So I've actually, it's funny, I was actually working out at the gym the other morning and I heard a gal who was getting ready for work next to me saying, ugh, I have a four-hour training today <laughs> that I have to sit through.
0: Oh, it's too bad. I, don't, I have to learn.
3: Yeah, well, and Ooh, I'm sitting on. there thinking, oh my gosh, I hope people don't say that about my trainings. Um, and then I actually heard, overheard another uh, guy in one of our sessions saying, well, nobody really likes training. And for me, I see those types of comments as a personal challenge because I believe learning can be valuable if it's fun and it challenges people and it can be directly applied to make your life easier and better. And and I feel personally that it's my job to not only educate, but also to entertain. You know. It's difficult to inspire people to take risks and change their behavior if they're not feeling engaged and positive. And if I'm not enthusiastic and passionate, how can I expect them to be?
0: I could totally see that, like where a participant, if they've had a previous experience, they may have preconceived notions about what this other training is going to be like if, if they've gone to you've seen the same speaker, been to the same type of workshop or whatever. But I think a lot of times it comes down to like, how are we setting this up, the expectations and the marketing? Um, through the objectives or just any sort of sampling of what they can experience because maybe you wouldn't have those sort of comments anymore. Maybe people would actually be energized about what they're about to get into because maybe if they they have a curious mind, why wouldn't you want to go and sit in a four-hour workshop if you're going to get a lot of value from it? What are we doing wrong here? Like, whoa, how do we get people to think differently, shift their paradigm to I get I get to go to a four-hour workshop?
3: Yeah. I think, well, I think the key is finding good workshops and finding good even web courses and it takes a lot of vetting. I mean, I I've I've been online on Open Sesame and I've been you know, spend hours vetting courses to find something that would meet my needs and be consistent with what Zenium would recommend for training. If I can't sit through it, you know, why would I expect someone else to? So I think vetting, going online, doing research, sampling, seeing if you can sample, whether it be through video or attending a session, we, do, we offer that to people, um, you know, here at Zunium who are looking at our our sessions and, and products, uh, looking at references and testimonials online. I mean, I think it's like with any product. There are people who, you know, really, do a fantastic job and then there are a lot of mediocre vendors and providers. So um, I think making sure that, again, not only are you finding relevant training options, but ones that are consistent with your culture and ones that are conducted by professionals who are not only knowledgeable, but they're passionate about what they're doing
0: so kind of last question, but big question for you. What, what does the future hold for live environment type workshops and seminars with technology and the, the ability to just watch things from your phone or just remotely? Like what, what's going to happen for the, what's going to happen for this medium as a professional development source? Are people going to do more or less of live stuff?
3: Yeah, and I think about this a lot because because you're the zero your world, this Yeah, and I think world, about yeah. it in terms of product development. Yeah, there's no question that people want 24/7 access to information and tools, and you know we know the younger generations especially understand that their personal and professional development is linked to their ability to readily access and apply knowledge, as well as through connecting with others. Uh, so because of this, I believe the demand for web-based content will just continue to grow. And the more interaction, whether it be through gamification or videos, the better. Um, And this type of of format, you know, has on-demand access and it also appeals to varying learning styles. In terms of workshops, I personally believe they will always have value because technology can't replace the social interaction and relationship building that occurs in a live workshop. Um, and that, you know, that interaction has huge benefits to people being able to effectively apply uh, learning in the workplace. So, you know, there are skills, like I mentioned before, that you know, like conflict management and coaching and constructive feedback that require practice, such as role play. Hard to do that in a, a web course. In um, a workshop, if it's done well, you know, can provide a safe and supportive environment to allow people to test out these techniques and receive helpful on-the-spot feedback before they actually go out and have conversations. So I think, again, there's no one perfect way to go. I think you need to look at the needs of, of your employee group and understand that there are varying learning styles. There's logistical issues. Um, And how can we put together a development program that addresses all of the knowledge, skills, and abilities that we need and is accessible and engaging for our organization? The other thing I will say, our attention spans are growing shorter. Um, I know for me especially, but so I am seeing more short, shorter, more frequent trainings. So unless I'm facilitating a team building event or retreat, most people want to keep workshops to two hours or less. And if you're looking at, you know, web-based content, it's even shorter snippets of seat time.
0: Thanks for the time, Susie. Appreciate it.
3: Sure. My pleasure.
0: I'd like to welcome to the podcast Alicia Young. She is the Director of HR Services at Zenium, and she's actually my cousin. So welcome to the podcast, Alicia. Uh, she's here to discuss experiential learning and growing your career by intentionally having experiences, accidentally having experiences. She's built out a really nice career for herself and has grown up through the ranks. And uh, she's got a nice story to tell. Alicia, in your 10 plus years at Xenium, you've gone from an HR rep to now a director of HR services. Throughout that time, you've gone through so many different experiences. And I want to kind of get your, your thought on how much of your growth is attributed to that experiential learning so on the job like being thrown into something and you sort of reflect on it and say wow actually there's something to be learned
4: i would say actually the majority of it Um, i did receive a degree in um, business management with an emphasis on hr but i never really fully understand what it meant to manage hr until i was on the job Um, there's never a time when uh, especially when it's sticky hr employee relation issues workplace issues there's rarely a time that you walk away from a situation and you don't say to yourself, I could have done that a little differently. Early in my career especially, because sometimes you know people would put you on the spot, ask you really tough questions, you're in the middle of an investigation, they tell you things that um, are very uncomfortable at times even and you have to somehow continue to maneuver through, through whatever type of conversation you're having and every single time you always walk away with what could I have done differently. There's never a time you don't. Even as a director of HR, even with my own employees now, um, I, I walk out of my one-on-ones with them. I walk out of me giving them advice on how to manage their client issues, and I still say to myself, what could I have done differently?
0: What's interesting, you, you talked about the, like, the uncomfortable part of that experiential part. So you're, you sort of have some uncomfortable or uneasiness about what you're doing in the moment but then afterwards you do a lot of reflection on like, wow, I'm so glad I pushed myself to do that. Do you, did you feel a lot of that or in the moment does it always feel just super uncomfortable?
4: It's actually not as uncomfortable as it sounds when you're in the moment because really you're doing the best possible job you can in that moment. It's when you think back to, oh, that wasn't the right word or I could have said that or um, phrased that a tad bit differently by the look that they gave me in their eyes, Um, especially when we're talking about, you know, really in-depth, sticky, HR-related issues. Again, it's usually not very uncomfortable in the moment because your adrenaline, um, when you, when you, for instance, when you go in to terminate somebody, your adrenaline is already kind of in a little bit of a rush uh, because it never feels good to terminate somebody. You're taking someone's livelihood away from them. Um, and even if you have the best termination where they know it's coming, and it still feels yucky. And so the, the reality is um, not anxious in the, t- in the moment. It's just I want to make sure that everybody, when they walk away from any conversation that they have from, with me, is I want them to go say she did it as gracefully as she possibly could have done it.
0: Do you ever do any reflection after the fact? What could I have done differently? Wow, I made a mistake here and i learned from it. Like Absolutely. how would you take each experience and sort of build on that? Because you, I mean, your track record shows that you, No, you were in an entry level position when you started here, and now you're you're leading a huge team. So
2: talk about. But
4: there's mistakes along the way. So there's there's no way that I couldn't. I've not made mistakes actually. And yes, a lot of times um, I'm I'm a pretty upfront person, and so if if I feel like. I've made a, a mistake or I feel like I've, uh, you know, kind of blundered a little bit in, in a communication with someone, I'm typically the first person to go back to them and say, you know, we got can we talk about the conversation we just had? I wanna be clear on what I, what I really meant and um, the message that you may have heard. Um, a lot of times in HR when you're dealing with employees and ER issues, though I may have thought I made a mistake or I may not have articulated myself well, it doesn't necessarily mean that the person or the people on the other side understand that or see that. So that's the beauty of being in HR is that it's not, unless I'm doing track, uh, transactional tactical type work and I miss a deadline or, or you know forget to give people the right paperwork, those types of things, um, so much of, of workplace issues are centered around feelings, people, thoughts, communications, so A lot of times people don't understand that you've made a mistake, but for me, it was making sure that I owned it and now whether or not that's having a conversation with my vice president about what maybe happened or something that I felt like didn't go the way I wanted it to go. Um, or maybe having a conversation with the client, the, the owner of the company afterwards to dialogue. Okay, how did you think it went? How did you think it went? Oh, I could have done a little bit better here or or whatnot. So it's, it's that constant self-reflection um, that sometimes HR people can get away from doing because it's not necessarily caught in the moment.
0: How do you seek out Additional experiences. So, you, you were talking about like if you're just doing transactional stuff all day, it's probably hard to get experiences outside of those things like the in the moment relationship problems you just talked about. I mean, those things obviously happen, but especially when somebody's trying to develop in their career, how do you seek out those experiences that are going to really push you to the outer edge of like your capabilities?
4: It's, it's owning something. So, whether or not you are in charge of benefits administration, um, it's taking ownership of, of whatever it is you're doing. So, I can fill out paperwork all day long, I can add people to um, websites, you know, add, drop, delete people off of their benefits. Um, but when I take ownership of it, i now understand what i'm doing from start to finish and i can actually consult and communicate to others about what it is i'm doing um and so it's it's all about finding opportunities to own whatever process procedure even in my in my years where i was a lot more junior doing that type of work it was all about owning that process and understanding it and not just thinking of it as a a start and stop. It was a, no, I want to know all about what it means to be on COBRA and every single type of example. And I want to be able to talk to an employee and give them some advice on what might be best for them in their situation.
0: When you think about your own career and all the professional development that you've had over the years, how, where does experiential learning really stack up against, you know, going out and getting certifications or, or other types of professional development for you?
4: I would say it's the, the the number one type of learning, especially in an HR field, because when we are in college and we're getting our certifications, it's a lot more textbook, and um, the examples that they give are are a lot of times a lot l- larger organizations, um, but again, still very textbook even in a larger organization. So it's um, the experiential learning for us is really hands on um learning and you f- and, and the re- here's the, here's the real part about it um, Oregon is made up of small to mid-sized employers primarily so no no matter what I do with one employer is going to be completely different than what I do with the next employer and the only way to learn that and understand it is to get your feet wet jump in with with everything you have and try your best and then continue to learn those clients and those people inside it out and own it and once you do that, you then have the ability to, to transition the way that you're learning but also transition the way that you're consulting p- for different clients.
0: When you think about your own team or really just anybody who's kind of newer in their career or, or really looking to develop, what would you tell them to rely on just exclusively on experiential learning? What sort of the risks are there in just focusing on experiential
4: um, the technical. So the, the, the risk, the risk in, is, is really the technical piece of it. So unfortunately, we still have to know, um, we have to understand, you know, well, how many people do you have to have in an employer to be OFLA qualified or female qualified? So there's still these technical components that we actually need from the textbook um, and the laws out there. So, so you, you do need both. But in order to maneuver through the situations themselves, Um, you need on-the-job experience.
0: What other, I mean, any kind of parting points that you'd want to tell people about experiential learning, especially somebody who, like, actually, myself is a great example. I I really have no interest in going back to school. Uh, I do a lot of self-learning, but I I see so much value in experiential learning. What do you tell somebody like me?
4: Watch and learn. So every single person around you, you can gain a tidbit of information, advice, style preference um from other people so don't be don't feel as though we so many times as humans we think we want to know everything and we want to be the sme in the room you know we want to be the expert in the room and we don't always learn by being the sme you know we learn by taking a step back and watching other people um, and seeing their approach to things and how they're interacting with people. And that would be my number one message would be watch that's and learn.
0: That's interesting because I normally would have thought experiences is in doing and action taking. But the point you just made about listening and watching other people, that's a really good one.
4: Yeah. And and you do have to do it at times. Um, and you have to kind of you, know, you have to make your own judgment, you know, and sometimes your own mistakes to figure out, I won't do it this way again. But if you are watching other people, you're listening to them while they're on the phone, you're just watching that interaction, you'll learn way more about what you like and what you don't like.
0: Awesome. Thanks for the time, Alicia. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.